The book of Hosea is about relationship. It shows us the relationship God wants to have with his people. And it shows the kind of relationship that existed in Hosea's time. And really, it was no relationship at all. God is as he has always been, like a faithful husband. Israel is like an unfaithful wife who doesn't want to come home. And we've seen how Israel's unfaithfulness is a miniature version of all humanity's unfaithfulness. The descriptions of Israel's spiritual prostitution show us the spiritual prostitution of the human race. And in all of this, we're being pointed back to the one who truly loves us. Who loves us with an eternal, unsurpassable love. This whole book is a call to turn back to God and find our satisfaction fully in him. And one way the book does that is by showing us the futility and the mess of life without God. That's what we find in our passage this morning. We already know about God's eternal commitment to romancing his people. The heart of God is faithful. But it's a very different story when it comes to humanity. Humanity's story is the story of the wandering heart. We're going to read from Hosea chapter 6 verse 4 through to the end of chapter 8. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 904 or the larger print Bibles 1406. Isaiah 6, verse 4, through to chapter 8, verse 14. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As at Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of evildoers, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked schemes. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. As for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people... Whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies, They're all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. 
On the day of the festival of our king, the prince has become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall and none of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is like a flat loaf not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove Easily deceived and senseless, now calling on Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them. But they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine. But they turn away from me. I train them and strengthen their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this... They will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord. Because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a metal worker has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap The whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. 
Judah has fortified many times, but I will send fire on their cities that will consume their fortresses. This is God's word. And the first thing it tells us about the wandering heart of humanity is that it is fickle towards God. Last week we ended with the first three verses of chapter 6, which we didn't read this morning. Those verses we saw are a call to repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord. And verse 3 gave assurance God is ready to run to those who turn to him. When a man or woman presses on to know God, then as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. The sunrise and the seasons are sure things. They're regular and they're dependable. God's character is like that. But humanity is very different. In verse 4, God says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. We've noticed before in Hosea's day, the ten northern tribes formed the kingdom of Israel, which was also referred to sometimes as Ephraim, because that was its most prominent tribe. And sometimes the north was referred to as Samaria because that was its capital city. And then the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, together they formed the kingdom of Judah. So Israel at this time was in two kingdoms. And here, God says to the northerners and the southerners, what can I do with you? Your hearts are so changeable. Your commitment comes and goes so quickly, like the morning mist and the early dew. And God says, it is not because I have been unclear. I knew your changeableness. Therefore, verse 5, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. This is not talking about literal swords. God is saying he spoke clearly to Israel. The message he sent through his prophets was not muddled. It was not obscure. It was not hard to understand. It was as direct as the thrust of a sword. It was as unmistakable as the slice of a sword. It was as obvious as the sun shining in the sky. And the message was, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. As we read that, we might wonder, but didn't God command sacrifice and burnt offerings in the Old Testament? Yes, he did. But again and again in the Old Testament, God was very careful to explain. Those rituals meant nothing if they were just rituals. They were supposed to be the expressions of people's hearts. What God wanted was mercy. Or a better translation would be faithful love. God wanted sacrifices that were an expression of genuine faithful love in people's hearts. He wanted burnt offerings 
that were brought out of a genuine desire to know him, not just to appease him or fob him off. God wants hearts that are committed to him, but what Israel has been giving him is just the ritual. Their love comes and goes like the morning mist. And we saw last week, at this point in Israel's history, even the ritual has gone badly off course. By this stage, the Israelites are offering sacrifices wherever and however they feel like it. And those sacrifices are directed to idols as much, if not more so, than to the true God. But the point is, even when the ritual is still being done, according to the letter of the law, the hearts of the people have moved on. And this is a timeless problem. How much religion today is just performed as a ritual? Well, the heart isn't really involved. It's easy for us to start thinking about other places and other churches, but what about ourselves? How much of our religion is carried out while our hearts actually are elsewhere? How often do you and I open our Bible at home? How often do we sit here in church going through the motions while our hearts are somewhere else? Our attention is elsewhere. And when you and I read Hosea, we realize today we can't just blame technology for that problem. Yes, it is a new thing to be tempted to shop on your phone during church. But the actual problem that prompts us to do that kind of thing is a heart problem. It's the very same problem these ancient Israelites had. Their hearts are fickle. Their love for God is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. In fact, verse 7 seems to be saying, this is a problem that goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. It says, as at Adam they have broken the covenant. Now there was a town in Israel at this time called Adam. It's mentioned in the book of Joshua. So it was probably still here a few hundred years later. But the NIV has a footnote telling us this could be translated, like Adam, they have broken the covenant. And in the context, that may well be the better translation. So in Eden, we're being reminded, God was looking for a relationship with Adam. A relationship that was based on trust and respect and commitment. A relationship where nothing was being held back. But in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve aborted that relationship with God. They decided God just couldn't be trusted. They weren't going to give themselves wholeheartedly to him. They weren't prepared to make that commitment to him. And humanity has been doing the very same thing ever since. Last week we saw some of the results that come from that. Broken relationships, broken religion. 
And there's more of that mentioned here. Verses 8 and 9 mention blood, ambush, victims, murder, wicked schemes. And we're told the priests in Israel were playing their part in it along with everyone else. And so, the wandering heart of humanity is fickle towards God, but at the same time, it's passionate about other things. At the end of chapter 6, God says, when I would heal and restore Israel, when I would call these fickle people back, what I find is they're consumed with other things. It's not simply that they're holding back from me. It's not that they're incapable of commitment. The problem is they're committed to other things. It's not that their hearts are incapable of passion. They're passionate about things other than me. Arthur Pink put it like this. The affections of man cannot be idle. If they do not go out to God, they leak out to worldly things. When our love for God decreases, the love of the world grows in our soul. In other words, as human beings, we are passionate people. That passion, if it's not focused on God, it is going to be focused on other things. And misdirected passion does not produce good results. Chapter 7, verse 1, describes a passion for material things, which leads to deceit. Bending the rules. That's if you're a respectable person. Otherwise, passion for material things leads to outright stealing, theft and robbery. So the manifestations might differ according to how socially respectable you are, but when our hearts are passionate about material things, the behavior it produces is never good. The collateral damage from it might be broken promises and neglected relationships. Or it might be broken windows and missing TVs. But either way, when our passion is for more money and more stuff, then sin prospers. And our hearts have no room for God. As the chapter goes on, God introduces this comparison with an oven. In chapter 7, verse 4. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. Adulterers here may mean the Israelites are passionate about sexual adultery. Or it may be a general reference to all kinds of unfaithfulness to God, including sexual adultery. But the point being made is that their passion just doesn't cool off. They're like an oven that doesn't need to be stoked. Ovens at this time were heated with burning coals that were shoveled in at the bottom. And so new coals needed to be brought every so often, shoveled in to keep the oven going. 
But God says, Israel's misdirected desires don't need to be stirred up. They don't need to be restoked because they never seem to fade. The next kind of passion that gets mentioned is a passion for power. Verse 5, on the day of the festival of our king, the prince has become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smolders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall. And none of them calls on me. The background is that around this time, Israel went through six kings in 30 years. And four of those kings became king by assassinating the king before them. The Israelites' love for God was like the morning mist. But their hunger for power was like a blazing oven. It never died down. Likewise with Israel's passion for looking to all the wrong places for help. Verse 8, Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. This is still with the illustration of the oven. Bread was baked in those kind of ovens by pressing it against a hot surface. And so it had to be turned every so often if it was going to be cooked right through. If it wasn't turned, well, you know what would happen. It went burnt and crusty on one side, while the other side stayed doughy and uncooked. And in Israel's case, the comparison seems to mean this. When Israel asked for Assyria's help to protect it and give it political security... Israel demanded, in return, big payments for their trouble. So Israel was getting badly burnt financially. The debt to Assyria was crippling the country. But at the same time, Israel was no more secure as a result of it all. She was no better able to resist her enemies. She was still a soft target for the other nations around her. So she's getting badly burnt from one direction, but she had no more of a firm defense against her enemies. She's just like a flat loaf, not turned over. That sad picture is followed by another in the middle of verse 9. Speaking of Israel here as a man, his hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Now, often in the Bible, gray hair is used as a sign of wisdom. But here, it's being used as a sign of decreasing strength. Israel's time is almost up, but Israel doesn't realize it. These people are so consumed by their passion for other things, they're neglecting the most important things. Faithful love and knowledge of God. And Israel is blind to the dire situation she's in. She's mixed up, she's half-baked, and her time is running out. But she's too distracted and too proud to seek God. 
Human nature has not changed since Hosea's day. It's still true that human affections cannot be idle. If they do not go out to God, they leak out to other lesser things. Things like material possessions. Things like sex, power, and false saviors that we put our hope in. As human beings, we give our love to all sorts of things. But they leave us mixed up and half-baked. I heard about a man recently who'd spent his money and his passion on being a football fan. But as he looked back on it all, his verdict was, I love Everton Football Club. But Everton Football Club doesn't love me. In the end, we will have to say that about every passion in our lives that replaces passion for God. The wandering heart of humanity is fickle towards God. It's passionate about other things. And as a result of that, it is always restless. Chapter 7, verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. The picture is a bird fluttering about, not able to settle, always twitching. It lights on one thing and then it twitters off to something else. And that picture is used here to describe Israel's political actions during this time. As each new king took over in Israel, he switched alliances. He made new promises to other nations. He took on new obligations to those nations and tried to get out of the ones he was already in. When our hearts are not fixed on God, that restlessness is going to come out, not just in politics, but in many other areas of life. So people flutter from one relationship to the next, from one career to the next, from one home to the next, one hobby to the next, sometimes even from one church to the next. Always hoping the next thing will give us peace and satisfaction and security. If we just... Hop from this thing onto the other one. The Christian writer Augustine prayed to God with great insight. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Until our hearts rest in God, all of us are a bit like jumpy little birds always fussing that the next branch might be better. Or maybe the next tree. Further down, God gives another example of Israel's restlessness at the end of verse 13. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened their arms, but they plot evil against me. Israel here is trying out the religion of the Baal worshippers. 
The idea was, the more feverish your worship was, well, the more Baal was likely to pay attention to you. And so cutting yourself was a way of showing Baal just how serious you were. You can read an example of that later in 1 Kings chapter 18. Very famous story on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal try to get his attention by slashing themselves with swords and spears. And here, as things are beginning to slide in Israel, as the nation is becoming more and more turbulent, the Israelites decide to give themselves a bit of a slashing. Maybe that will be the solution to their problems. Make their religion a bit more worked up. But God says in verse 15, Israel's strength comes from me. I trained them and strengthened their arms. They don't need another religious method. They don't need a more high-octane form of religion. What they need is me. But, verse 16, they do not turn to the Most High. They're like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. All this fluttering about is never going to bring Israel peace. It's only going to bring the judgment of God and the ridicule of what Israel thought was her new friends. And so in the end, the wandering heart is doomed to disappointment and slavery. When the human heart is not fixed on God, there can be no other outcome. Chapter 8, verse 1. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. When they're sil- with their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf idol, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a metal worker has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. This is an overview of Israel's wandering heart. They still want God on their side, of course, but they are living in rebellion against him. They want their own kings, not God's chosen king. They make their own idols and they make their own religion. In verse 7, God says, Israel has been doing a whole lot of sowing. And now she's going to reap a harvest from it. And it is not going to be a harvest of peace and security. It will be a harvest of desolation and emptiness. The hopes that she placed in her idols will end up like the idol in verse 6, broken to pieces. For all her many lovers, verse 8, she's going to end up like something no one wants. 
And Israel needs to know God is involved in this. This downfall will not only be due to the empty things she trusted in. This harvest of desolation is going to be God's judgment on her rebellion. Look down to verse 11. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns. But I will send fire on their cities that will consume their fortresses. It's not like God had left Israel to guess what he wanted. In verse 12, God reminds Israel he had revealed his character and his will in his law. Given through Moses on Mount Sinai. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. That's the key to their whole problem. The God who loved them had sent them a detailed love letter. No other God took the care to show his people how to live in fellowship with him. Other gods supposedly demanded sacrifices. But only the true God, only Israel's God, said to his people, here is how you can know me and walk with me. Here's how I created you to live and flourish so that you won't end up breaking and squandering your life. Only Israel's God said, here's how to live a life that won't end in disappointment and slavery to sin and lovers that never love you back. God revealed his heart. But Israel thought that his love letter was something foreign. They thought that because their hearts were more in tune with idols. Their passions were stirred up by other things, not by God's word to them. And for Israel, the end result will be heartache. Their commitment to other loves will lead them eventually into exile and slavery. So what does Israel need? What do we all need? Another chance? Just one more chance? But at this point, Israel has had hundreds and hundreds of years worth of chances. God's patience has been absolutely supernatural with these people. Another chance is not going to help Israel. Just like another chance doesn't help humanity in general. When we have wandering hearts, one more chance is just another chance to wander. What Israel needed and what we all need is a new heart. A heart that can see the beauty of God and taste the satisfaction of God. And that is what God promised. 
Ezekiel was another Old Testament prophet around the time of the exile. So roughly a contemporary of Hosea. And through Ezekiel, God made this promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That was God's Old Testament commitment and it became a reality in the New Testament. The New Testament tells us if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The first step to curing our wandering hearts is to receive a new heart through faith in Jesus. Without that, all of the resolutions and the rituals in the world will get us nowhere. It takes a new heart to move from hearing God's word as something that's foreign to hearing it for what it really is, a love letter from our maker. A word of life and freedom rather than a word of curtailment. And so maybe today some of us here need to admit that we need a new heart, that we can't cure ourselves, that we need to turn to Jesus and trust in him. That's what cures us. And if you already profess to be a Christian, but you find, as we all do sometimes, that your heart is wandering still. If you find that your passion for God is withering away, if your heart is beginning to be restless, always chasing and grasping for something new, if God's word is beginning to sound foreign to you, then ask yourself, let's all ask ourselves, what passions am I feeding in my heart? If I'm stoking every fire in my heart except my fire for God, then I don't need a theology degree to know what's going to happen my fire for God is going to begin to flicker in my heart. Just like my fire for my wife will flicker if I take my wife for granted and ignore her and give my time to other people instead of her. We cannot love God without a new heart. But once we have a new heart, we've got to feed the fire of our love for God. If the Bible seems dry to us, then we have to imagine God saying to us, these are my words to you. This is where you will find me. This is where you will find reassurance of my care for you. This is where you will find about my strength and my wisdom. This is where you will see again the beauty of my plan for the world. And the love that will see that plan through to its beautiful end. 
a new heaven and earth. Read this book and you will begin to see again the sense of clinging to God when there are a hundred other lovers calling you as well. Read the letter God has written for you. When your heart is wandering, force yourself to do it. Keep choking it down even when you don't have the stomach for it. And God's words to you will slowly begin to still your restless heart. Your wandering heart will begin again to find its satisfaction in God. We need God. We need his word. And our next song is an opportunity to confess to God how much we need him. It's an opportunity to own up to our wandering hearts and find his mercy again. And then our last song points us to this letter from the lover of our souls, the gift of the scriptures. But first of all, God of grace.